Coming to you live from the basement of an abandoned house in the middle of a field, it's the Derek Izzy Show. Making history his story, Derek Izzy. Thank you, thank you, and welcome back to the Derek Izzy Show. A brand new show for you this month of July. We've got a lesson in history for you. In celebration of the July 4th weekend, this is an episode that will take you back in time. But first, we have our monthly five-star review winner, Moses. Moses, do we have a winner for this month? Yes, we do have a winner, boss. And as soon as you tell me who that winner is, then I will tell you what she said. Wait, as soon as I tell you who the winner is? Moses, I thought you already picked the winner. Don't we have one who's already previously chosen? Whoa. Um. Moses? Oh, yeah, I I guess you're right. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought. Okay, so the winner of this month's five-star review contest, drumroll, this month's winner... From the Windy City of Chicago, Illinois, this month's winner is Lily. Moses, go ahead and read uh, Lily's review. Derek, OMG, great job on this. I love how you give details and you speak about it naturally. You made it worth listening to. Thank you so much, Lifesaver. Well, thank you, Lily. I'm not sure how... How many lives the podcast has saved, but thank you very much for your review. And we will continue bringing you new episodes of the Derek Izzy Show, making history his story and saving lives at the same time. And now, the topic of today's podcast. One of the things that we participate in, well, most of us do, are the political elections. You elect your state representatives, your senators, state senators, congressmen, all these different political elections. And the format for these candidate selections has kind of changed over the years. Now, something that most of you may not be aware of is the way a vice presidential candidate is selected. Back in the 1700s, when a president would run for office, the electoral college votes and they decide who the top candidates are. In the late 1700s, the president would be the number one candidate who garnered the most electoral votes. It's still the same way today. The president is the candidate who garners the most electoral votes. But back in the late 1700s, the vice president was the candidate who garnered the second most electoral votes. That's right, it's not like it is today where the president selects a vice president 
their running mate for the election. The vice president was the runner-up to the presidential election. Now, a system like this often created a situation where the president was from one party and the vice president was from the opposing party. You can imagine what kind of conflict that created between the president and the vice president. Well, soon after the 1700s, in 1804, the 12th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified. After the presidential election of 1796, John Adams and Vice President Thomas Jefferson were from opposing parties. This 12th Amendment ended up being proposed shortly after the 1796 election. During that election, President John Adams and Vice President Thomas Jefferson, they were from opposing parties. The 1800 election led to a tie between Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr. They were members of the same party. But it took the House of Representatives 36 ballots to break the tie. Eventually, Thomas Jefferson was elected president and Aaron Burr was elected vice president. Then in 1804, after the 12th Amendment passed, Jefferson was re-elected president and George Clinton became the first vice president under the 12th Amendment. So now you know a little bit about the way the election works as far as changes to the way it originally worked when selecting the vice president. That will all lead up to the topic of today's podcast. A couple of the other interesting things that I found about the the way a president and vice presidents are selected are the minimum qualifications for president. The minimum qualifications, which I hope most of you learned in, in history class at a young age, you have to be at least 35 years old. You must be a natural-born citizen of the United States. So you've got to be born here. And the theory behind this is it protects us from any foreign influence over our government. Now, when the 12th Amendment was passed, part of that amendment made the vice presidential qualifications the same as the presidential qualifications. Now, why, why would we need to meet the same requirements when you're a vice president? Well, because if something happens to the president, the vice president comes into power and it makes sense for the vice president to have to meet all those same qualifications. Something else that this 12th Amendment added is, I'll call it a, a suggestion that the president and vice president should not be from the same state. Now, it doesn't directly say that they can't be from the same state, but it does determine how the electoral votes are assigned. For example, electoral votes are what gives the president and what gives the vice president the office that they hold. They are both recipients of electoral votes, but... The electoral votes of each state can only go to one candidate from that state. Now, that sounds a little bit confusing, but to give you a real-world example of what I'm talking about here, let's look at the presidential election from the year 2000. George W. Bush ran for president, and his vice president was Dick Cheney. Now, they were both residents of Texas. So, with both of them being Texas residents... If the electoral votes for president went to George W. Bush, then the electoral votes for vice president could not go to Dick Cheney. In order to work their way around this, Dick Cheney registered to vote in Wyoming. 
He was previously a Wyoming resident, so registering to vote in Wyoming was not a big deal. But by doing this, it allowed him to receive all the electoral votes for vice president from the state of Texas. Something that I learned when I was researching this was that the electoral votes actually go for vice president as well as president. That was something that I was unaware of. I always thought that a president selects his vice presidential candidate and they just run and the president gets all the votes and the vice president just gets accepted in because he's on the same ticket as the president. Well, no, the ele- there's electoral votes that actually go for the vice president as well. Some interesting thoughts behind this 12th Amendment is what to do in the event that no candidate receives a majority of electors. In the case of that, the House of Representatives selects a new president from the top candidates. However, this vote is done within the House on a state basis, not by a representative basis. So if you look at it like this, you could say that each state gets one vote. It is a selection that is done within the House of Representatives, but it is done by state, not done by representative. This makes each state's vote equal, regardless of the size of the state. And that's something that we've been dealing with in a lot of the more recent elections, where a candidate will win the majority of electoral votes because they won a lot of the smaller states, and yet not actually win the popular vote because they lost the big cities. So that brings us up through the 12th Amendment. Now we are into the 1860s, something called the Tenure of Office Act. This was an act that was passed by Congress, which a lot of people are familiar with the process today. When a president forms his cabinet, the appointments have to be approved by the Senate. Well, the Tenure of Office Act limited the president's ability to form his cabinet in this way. It changed the law so that not only do appointments have to be approved by the Senate, but anyone that the president wants to get rid of in the cabinet also has to be approved by the Senate. So if the president comes into office and there's somebody in the cabinet that they don't like that they want to replace... They can't just replace them with this Tenure of Office Act. The act requires them to get permission from the Senate. Now, why is this significant? Because in the 1860s, leading up to the topic of our podcast, this caused a big disruption in the government and led to the very first presidential impeachment. Now we are into 1865. President Abraham Lincoln has just been assassinated. Vice President Andrew Johnson is now president. Upon taking office, he seemed like he was going to continue with Lincoln's policies. He seemed to be on the right track, and he had a lot of support from his Congress. However, it didn't take long for President Johnson's views on Reconstruction to come to the forefront. He was very sympathetic to the South. Keep in mind, the Civil War had just ended, and the time had come to reconstruct the South. Johnson started by pardoning former Confederate leaders. He started blocking 
actions of the radical Republicans who were in power. He had no interest in compromising with them, and you can imagine how this angered the Republican-led Congress. One of the big issues around the Johnson presidency had to deal with Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. He was appointed by President Lincoln, and the Republican Congress was very much in favor of his appointment. They wanted him in office and thought he was necessary to the direction that the Republicans wanted to go. Edwin Stanton strongly opposed Johnson's plan for Reconstruction. Edwin did not want Johnson in office, and Johnson didn't want Stanton in office. So Johnson was going to act. He promptly fired Edwin Stanton. He issued a replacement to fill the position. Now, Congress reacted by overruling President Johnson. How did they do this? They did this with the Tenure of Office Act, an act which President Johnson vetoed, but Congress was able to override the veto because all cabinet dismissals require the consent of Congress. That took away President Johnson's ability to fire Edwin Stanton, but he did it anyway. Because of this action, violating the Tenure of Office Act, Congress took steps to impeach him. After a lengthy impeachment trial, the final results were in. President Johnson was impeached by the House of Representatives in February of 1868. The Senate put his case on trial, concluding in May of 1868. The Senate decided to acquit President Johnson with a vote of 35 guilty, 19 not guilty. They needed two-thirds in order to convict him. They fell short by one vote. Years later, in 1926, the Tenure of Office Act went to the Supreme Court and was deemed to be unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. One of the Republicans who started making news around this time was General Ulysses S. Grant. 1868, he would be the Republican nomination for president. All of this is a lead-up to the topic of today's podcast. That little piece of background that I've given you leads us to the Democratic Party nomination of 1868. The Democrats were gathered for their national convention in New York City, five-day convention running July 4th through July 9th in 1868, Something that they didn't have back then was reliable transportation to get to the convention. If you need transportation to get to the Democratic convention, the Republican convention, any type of convention or convention center, use Lyft. Lyft is a ride-sharing service, usually about half the price of a taxi. And the way to get Lyft is download the app. It's L-Y-F-T. Now, you want to use discount code DEREK, D-E-R-E-K, 6055-03. Once again, that's DEREK, D-E-R-E-K, 6055-03. Using that discount code will get your first ride free up to $20. Now, it only works for your first ride, so you got to make sure you type that discount code in as soon as you download the app. Lyft is a very innovative service. You will be greeted by your driver who will be in a good mood, happy to pick you up, 
and ready to take you where you need to go. Everything is available in the app. There's no cash exchanged. You can even tip the driver through the app. The app will show you where your designed route is. It shows you where your driver is when they're coming to pick you up, so you can get an estimate about how long it will take them to get to you and when you need to be ready. And then it gives you a fare estimate on how much the fare will be before you decide to order the driver. Lyft is a ride-sharing service that has been around for years and has been a faithful sponsor of The Derek Izzy Show. Make sure when you use Lyft, use that code Derek, D-E-R-E-K, 605503, and you will get your first ride for free, up to $20 in value. If you'd like to email the show about your Lyft experience, we'd love to share it with the audience. You can shoot me an email. Email address is Derek, D-E-R-E-K, at DerekIzzy.com. Just put in the subject line, Lyft, L-Y-F-T. That way, the email gets routed to the correct area. Now, the Democratic Convention was very contentious that year. You have the impeached and disgraced Andrew Johnson still on the platform as a Democratic candidate. You've got lots and lots of other candidates, too. Former President Johnson won 65 votes on the first ballot, less than one-third, and thus lost his bid for election as president. When they run those ballot votes, you need at least one-third of the votes in order to be nominated as a candidate. An unexpected candidate received nine votes from the state of North Carolina. He was the convention chairman, Horatio Seymour. Now, when those votes were read aloud, the audience went wild. They started cheering, and... Horatio was not even running for president, but as the chair of the convention, he got votes. He said, I must not be nominated by this convention, as I could not accept the nomination if tendered. My own inclination prompted me to decline at the outset. My honor compels me to do so now. It is impossible, consistently with my position, to allow my name to be mentioned in this convention against my protest. The clerk will proceed with the call. Horatio was a former governor of New York, very powerful and very well known amongst government officials at the time. After the cheers for him died down, he said, I have no terms in which to tell of my regret that my name has been brought before this convention. God knows that my life and all that I value most in life I would give for the good of my country, which I believe to be identified with that of the Democratic Party. There were more cheers, and somebody suggested that he take the nomination. And he responded, But when I said that I could not be a candidate, I mean it. I could not receive the nomination without placing not only myself, but the Democratic Party in a false position. God bless you for your kindness to me, but your candidate I cannot be. Seymour left the stage. He didn't want to be president. He didn't want to run. He didn't want anything to do with that. He was happy as the convention chair and with his current roles in government. So he left the platform. Shortly after Seymour left the stage, the chairman of the Ohio delegation came up saying that even though Seymour declined the nomination, he would not accept that. Then the chairman from the state of Utah, he agreed. While Seymour was off stage after he had just given a speech about not being nominated, 
the convention decided to nominate him. To give you a little background on who Horatio Seymour was, he was born in 1810 in New York. Involved in politics for the majority of his life, he went to Hobart College, Utica Academy, and graduated from the Captain Partridge Military Academy in Connecticut. Admitted to the bar of 1832, he entered politics in 1842, was a member of the New York House of Representatives, and became governor of the state of New York. He completed two terms as New York State Governor, and he was very active and vocal on national policies. New York being one of the biggest states in the Union at the time, he had a lot of influence over the direction that the country went simply based on the size of his state. He developed a letter-writing campaign between him and President Abraham Lincoln. In some of the letters, he actually had the upper hand on President Lincoln, making Lincoln appear to be weak in the eyes of the public. Horatio Seymour had several harsh criticisms for the way that Abraham Lincoln was handling national issues, especially dealing with the South and the Civil War. Seymour was clearly against a lot of the administration and policies that were in place, and he didn't hold back. He was very, very critical of the administration, and he wasn't afraid to speak up and say this. He exchanged several letters with President Lincoln. Here's a caption from one of the letters. This is a letter that President Lincoln wrote to Horatio Seymour. He says, You and I are substantially strangers, and I write this chiefly that we may become better acquainted. I, for the time being, am at the head of a nation which is in great peril, and you are at the head of the greatest state of that nation. As to maintaining the nation's life and integrity, I assume, and believe there cannot be a difference of purpose between you and me. If we should differ as to the means, it is important such difference should be as small as possible, that it should not be enhanced by unjust suspicions on one side or the other. In the performance of my duty, the cooperation of your state, as that of others, is needed. In fact, is indispensable. This alone is a sufficient reason why I should wish to be at good standing with you. Please write me as long a letter as this. Of course, saying in it, just what you think. Now the fact that the president, the leader of the country, is asking for the opinion of a governor and saying, please write me, makes the president look weak in the eyes of the public. It was this kind of letter-writing exchange that made Horatio Seymour a hero to his Democratic Party. Governor Seymour's response to Lincoln says, I have delayed answering your letter for some days with a view of preparing a paper in which I wish to state clearly the aspect of public affairs from the standpoint I occupy. I do not claim any superior wisdom, but I am confident the opinion I hold are entertained by one half of the population of the northern states. I have prevented from giving my views in the manner I intended by a pressure of official duties, which at the present stage of the legislative session of this state confines me to the executive chamber until each midnight. In the mean, while I assure you that no political resentments or no personal objects will turn me aside from the pathway 
I have marked out for myself. I intend to show those charged with the administration of public affairs a due deference and respect, and to yield them a just and generous support in all measures they may adopt with the scope of their constitutional powers. For the preservation of this union, I am ready to make every sacrifice of interest, passion, or prejudice. It is through these letter exchanges you can see the personality of Horatio Seymour coming through. He's a very moral man and very strong and sticks to his principles. Even though he was against running for president, the nomination of his party was something he could not deny. Upon being nominated, he reluctantly accepted the nomination and decided to make his run for president. Now, like I said before, he was a very moral man. He was educated, charming, very opinionated. He didn't really like political conflict. He almost never smoked, rarely drank, but he was no saint. He's described as a cultured Christian gentleman, quality that you really don't see in a lot of politicians. So he was definitely rare for his time. Back then, most politicians were considered corrupt, much like they are today. That's some part of our history that still hasn't changed. Now that Seymour is officially running, something he said in a letter that was written to his family, he says, I do not care about my election. That is not probable. But I want the opponents of the bad men who have brought our country into its present deplorable condition to be so much aroused as to make themselves felt and respected. If this is done, we shall have a strong, compact party that can defy violence and keep fanatics in check. We live in a frightening world, and in times like these, they are most safe who take strong grounds and call around them strong friends. Something interesting about that quote is you could easily apply it to the world today. But that was Horatio Seymour back in the 1860s. The 1868 campaign was definitely underway. Our candidate Horatio Seymour had some negativity in his campaign. The New York Tribune led a cartoon campaign with a picture of Seymour standing on the steps of City Hall calling a mob of New York draft rioters, quote-unquote, my friends. This was a very damning political cartoon. It definitely made this candidate looked like he was su supporting the draft rioters. This is one of those issues where I don't know if you would call it fake news, but you have to go back in and look at the entirety of the event to really understand what happened. Another big newspaper, the Hartford Post, referred to him as almost as much of a corpse as ex-president James Buchanan, who had recently died. Some of the other allegations from... The opposing party said that insanity ran through his family, using the suicide of Horatio Seymour's father as evidence of mental illness. Now, I talked about the draft rioters, and as I researched that, I saw the big headlines that Horatio Seymour was weak and called the draft rioters his friends. But what I found from my research is that he was dealing with a mob. It was an anti-government mob. And he did address them as, as his friends. Instead of addressing them as people or fellow citizens, 
He called them my friends. Now, he's dealing with an angry mob. One of the best ways to calm an angry mob is to empathize with them, which is exactly what he was doing. There's two ways to handle that mob. You come at them with brute force and you overpower them, or you empathize with them so that they remain calm and peaceful. That's the direction that Horatio Seymour was trying to go in that particular situation. But that one line was used against him and made him look sympathetic in that cartoon and that single headline. That's exactly what we see today in the news. A headline that paints something one way, but when you actually go into the content and find out what happened and why, you get a completely different story. As the campaign continued, it was now time for the election. Horatio Seymour, the unwilling presidential candidate against Ulysses S. Grant. As the popular vote came rolling in, Horatio Seymour, coming on strong with 2.7 million votes versus Ulysses S. Grant at 3 million. While the margin of votes was very, very close, the Electoral College ended the election in favor of Ulysses S. Grant. While the 2.7 million versus 3 million was a very close margin, the electoral votes told a different story, with Ulysses S. Grant winning 214 to Horatio Seymour's 80. The way the electoral votes go, it was pretty much a blowout. Some of the interesting things about this election are how the party lines were. And you can compare it to the way it is today. Uh, Just to give you a couple examples, the counties that were voting for Ulysses S. Grant, there were counties in Tennessee, Iowa, Kansas, Nebraska, West Virginia, where 100% of the vote went to Ulysses S. Grant. You look at Horatio Seymour, several counties in Louisiana voted 100% for Seymour. Two of the closest states in this election, the state of California was won by Ulysses S. Grant with a majority of 0.48%, and the state of Oregon was won by Horatio Seymour by a margin of 0.74%. Those are margins of less than 1%, with that California being less than half a percent. That is an extremely small margin of victory. Even the state of New York. Of course, Horatio Seymour won the state of New York, but only by a margin slightly over 1%. Same thing with New Jersey. Almost 2% he won the state of New Jersey, but you would think that being in the former governor of New York that he would have a large large majority in those areas. So in the end, Ulysses S. Grant trumped over our unwilling presidential candidate, Horatio Seymour. This concludes the Derek Izzy Show. This episode, Do You Want to Be President?, has been brought to you by Lyft. Use discount code Derek, D-E-R-E-K, 605503. Remember to check out our Facebook page. Just look up The Derek Izzy Show on Facebook. All of our episodes are broadcast on iTunes, on Facebook. Facebook page, just share it with your friends. If each person shares it with one person, we can take over the world. Don't forget, if you would like to have your five-star review read by Moses, the only way to do that is to get on iTunes and write that five-star review of the podcast. 
If you have any comments or would like to tell a story about your experience with Blue Apron or Lyft or any of our sponsors, all of our sponsors are directly listed on the website, and you can always shoot us an email, Derek at DerekIzzy.com. If you want to share a Lyft experience, just put Lyft in the subject line and it will get to the right person. This has been the Derek Izzy Show. Good day. 